0: You are listening to The Scope, a podcast dedicated to having open conversations about healthcare topics relevant to our patients and community. Today, we're talking about sleep health and sleep apnea. Let's get started today our guest is Hala salmon MD who is our sleep medicine specialist at Phelps health thank you so much for coming to our show today yeah absolutely we are very absolutely. very excited to have you here I don't think we've ever had a sleep medicine specialist on our show so this is this is bound to be really interesting right wow. yeah absolutely <laughs> so before we kind of dive into sleep medicine and what all of that entails tell us a little bit about yourself dr. salmon sure yeah so um, I'm originally from Ohio that's
1: where I was uh, grew up and I uh, I completed my neurology residency at Kansas University Medical Center, and then I went on to do Sleep Medicine Fellowship up in Rochester, Minnesota at Mayo Clinic. But yeah, that's just a little bit about me.
0: Yeah, very cool. So what interested you so much about sleep medicine? What kind of drew you into that field? Sleep in and of itself
1: just controls so much of your health, and it's so important. And so being able to prevent disease or prevent something from from, uh, getting worse was really important to me. So that was a big draw.
0: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of sleep. I'm a person who needs a solid eight hours in order to Mm -hmm. be a functioning adult. (laughs) I can understand that. (laughs) So let's just dive right in. How important is sleep?
1: So I think it's as important as breathing and eating. It's Mm -hmm. one of the main uh, really important things for your overall health and well-being. You know, a lot of studies have linked poor sleep uh, in kids with poor attention span, poor learning and memory, bad behavior. Um, And also, you know, just for overall mental and physical health, you know, kids really need sleep. And also for adults as well, not getting the recommended amount of sleep per night is linked with things like um, diabetes, uh, stroke, heart disease, heart failure, um, funny heart rhythms, high blood pressure, and just overall as well, your memory gets affected and just health. And so it's really important. Obesity too, I forgot to mention, just increasing weight gain and obesity is linked to not getting enough sleep at night.
0: Let's talk about how many hours of sleep, you know, should children, teens and adults get each night. So I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm a big fan of eight hours of sleep, but mm-hmm. is that average? And what does it look like for different age ranges? Absolutely.
1: So on average, adults aged 18 and over should be getting at least seven to eight hours per night. You know some people are a little bit longer sleepers and need a little more than 8 hours and that's absolutely fine as long as you're not getting less than 6 and more than 10 I think is a good number and again each person's different so while well, some need 7 some need 8 others need 9 or more so
0: what is bad about getting more than 10 hours of sleep
1: so getting more sleep can also be too much sleep can be linked with things like diabetes and increased stroke risk increased heart heart disease as Mm -hmm. well.
0: Now, what about sleep apnea? So, you know, some people go to sleep at night and they just, they can't ever fall asleep or, you know, whatever the issue is. And it wakes them up. Mm -hmm. So sleep apnea is a condition where uh, your airway may collapse on itself or
1: your tongue might fall back. And what's happening is your oxygen's briefly dipping multiple times per night. So you're not getting the oxygen level that you need to your brain, but you're also waking up multiple times a night. And so you wake up feeling unrested, you're tired and sleepy during the day, you're, you know, it affects your, your mood, your memory. And so it's really, um, it's really this condition that you're not often aware that it's happening because you often feel like you're asleep, even though you're waking up often, but other people can tell you if it's occurring.
0: Is sleep apnea something that's hereditary or does it happen because of lifestyle choices? It's a good
1: question. So it can be hereditary. Um, so people who have inherited a narrow oral airway, so the back of the throat, how, depending on how wide or narrow it is, can place you at a little bit higher risk for sleep apnea. And also just the anatomy of the jaw, smaller jaw, smaller chin, or uh, teeth that are set back a little bit can be something that's
0: inherited from family. Wow, I had no idea. So, what about like sleep apnea? Let's say somebody that does have this, and they may not know. Mm-hmm. How does it affect their daily life? What are some ways that they might recognize? Hey, maybe I should get this checked out.
1: So, a big one is sleepiness. So if you're sleepy during the day, you're tired, you can't get through your day. Attention and memory too. Um, if you feel like you know you're struggling, you're in this kind of memory fog. You can't think clearly. You're having trouble um, computing or just you know paying attention to things, or your memory struggling, and just you know tired through the day. That's
0: one big thing to look at. Are there risk factors for different ages for men versus women whenever it comes to sleep apnea? Are more people at risk versus others? So men are slightly higher risk than females for developing sleep apnea. Is there a reason for that? You know, I think
1: it tends to be with um, neck circumference and how wide the neck is and maybe airway anatomy and the more likelihood to
0: have uh, obstruction in the throat. So for women, that, that kind of makes me laugh because I'm like, oh, I, I guess I'm really glad that I'm a woman because I probably would be less likely to have that issue, right? It's not a, it's not a significant, um, so it's not a significant reduction
1: in risk. So there, the more the bigger risks that I look at are things like um, the airway anatomy. So that's one of the big ones. If you have a narrow oral airway in the back that I look at during my examination, that puts you at a high risk. The second one is neck circumference absolutely for for men it's anything over 17 inches and for female anything over 16 inches places you at higher risk now there are men with neck um, with less than 17 inches and females with neck with less than 16 inches that absolutely have sleep apnea so that's not an absolute necessary uh, mm-hmm. factor uh, but the, the wider the neck gets is it's associated with weight gain so that places you at higher risk as well but also time so as you're nearing 50s And above, the muscles in the airway are more likely to relax and collapse at night, so that's another big risk factor.
0: Is there a way that as we age, we can strengthen those muscles in our airway, or is that just part of aging? It's something that I think is part of aging. I know there are some
1: um, neck-strengthening muscle exercises that are out there and available, but I don't know that they've really been studied or known to do significant You know, Mm -hmm. improvement.
0: Yeah, there probably needs to be more research done and correlated, right? Absolutely. So why is sleep apnea often so underdiagnosed? Good question. So
1: (laughs) most often people don't know that they snore. Yeah, they they think they're just sleepy, right? Absolutely. Or they don't know that they're stopping breathing or you know, um, I think in popular media snoring was just thought to be part of you're getting good deep sleep and so you're snoring. And so often people don't know and sleep apnea was one of these diagnoses that we just recently started learning more about. So back in the late 80s to early 90s is when we started to really discover it and learn more about it. And just now we're still you know, starting to understand how much it can really interfere and affect your health overall. So I think more and more we're learning more about it and, and um, people are starting to identify it and learn more about it. But You're absolutely right. You know, often it's just underdiagnosed and missed.
0: Yeah, so yeah. you talked about snoring, which I think is so interesting because you mm-hmm. said Sometimes people will just say, oh, I I was so tired, I slept so good, that's why mm-hmm. I snored. I've done that. I have mm-hmm. actually said that too in my own personal life. Okay. So is snoring always a, a sign that you may have sleep apnea, or w- what is snoring? That's a very good question. So a majority of times, the people
1: that I see in my clinic, a majority of times snoring is linked with sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. But there is a possibility, a small possibility, that you can have primary snoring, which can be related to just congestion mm-hmm. or or enlarged um, nasal passages that are causing resistance to the airflow. So it's not 100% always linked to sleep apnea, but if you do have snoring, it puts you at higher risk to have Mm -hmm. underlying sleep apnea.
0: Yeah, really interesting. My husband too, whenever Mm -hmm. we drive places, he will lay back and whenever Mm -hmm. he lays on his back, sometimes he snores. So now I'm like, Mm -hmm. boy, we probably need an appointment. (laughs) Yeah, definitely get it. Yeah, looked into. Just, yeah, while we're here, let's right. diagnose. So, <laughs> so, you know, if a loved one is a chronic loud snorer like my husband, could there be a chance that they have sleep apnea? Absolutely. So, things to look at are you
1: know chronic loud snoring. There is a question screening questionnaire available that you can go through that you can identify and see if someone is at higher risk for sleep apnea. So scoring three or more on this questionnaire places you at higher risk. Now, just because let's say you score two, I think it's still important to get evaluated. If you have some symptoms, it doesn't absolutely mean that you don't have sleep apnea, but it's called the stop bang questionnaire. So S um, stands for, do you snore? So that's one if someone's snoring. Uh, T is, do you feel tired or fatigued during the day? Um, O is, obstruction. So is someone told you that you stopped breathing or do you wake up gasping for air? And then P is, do you have high blood pressure or are you treated for high blood pressure? So, and then B is, uh, BMI. So do you have, you know, elevated BMI? Usually over 28 is what we look for. And then age, that's one of the ones I was telling you about is yes. as you near age 50 or above, that's one of the risk factors. And, um, N is for neck circumference, so that that's what we talked about for males: neck that's wider than seven at or wider than 17 inches, and for females, uh, 16 inches or above. And then G is gender, and that's you know, are you male?
0: So males
1: again, slightly. Yeah,
0: unfortunately for males. Yep. Yep. So again, three (laughs) and above. Definitely Uh get evaluated. That puts you at higher risk. Yeah, I'm like laughing as I go through this because I'm like, oh, I guess I'm, you know, today going to be making an appointment for my husband. (laughs) That's right. And you know, one other thing. So
1: I don't want just the screening tool to be the reason, but uh, so if you scored less than three, there are a lot of people who have high blood pressure and atrial fibrillation. So Mm -hmm. about eighty percent of people who were found to have high blood pressure plus a funny heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation, that were that have sleep apnea, whether it be diagnosed or underdiagnosed, and oftentimes Mm -hmm. people with heart disease you know, are underdiagnosed because they don't have the classic symptoms that we, we associate with sleep
0: apnea. Yeah, absolutely. So how difficult is it? You know, we talk about how difficult it is to diagnose sleep apnea and you guys do these things called sleep studies. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that. What does a sleep study look like? So a sleep study. So there are two different
1: types of sleep studies. There's an in-lab sleep study where you come to the sleep lab and basically the sleep lab kind of looks like a hotel room. Uh, with a bad TV nightstand and whatnot. Or there's a home sleep apnea test where you can get hooked up and then sleep at home. Between the two, the, the in-lab sleep studies are more accurate and they can tell me a lot more. They can tell me more about if someone's um, like kicking at night is causing awakenings mm-hmm. or if there are other problems with sleep that we need to look at. But a home sleep apnea test is a good start. Um, home sleep apnea tests can sometimes underestimate the, the severity and or the presence of sleep apnea. And so for some people you know the recommendation is to go forward with an in-lab study. But for those that are hesitant to sleep outside of their home, it could be a good starting point. With the in-lab sleep study, what happens is um, people are hooked up, so there are wires. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not usually indicative of a typical night's sleep, but you know often we can get good information to really let us know if someone has sleep apnea or not. But um, it's, again, looks like a hotel room, uh, there's technicians at night that score um, score the sleep study, and then, you know, I read the sleep studies in the morning, and then we review the results after that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting listening to you say that, because Mm -hmm. my first thought would be that an in-lab sleep study may be skewed because you're outside of your normal environment. Mm -hmm. So why is an in-lab sleep study so much more valuable than at home? Home sleep apnea
1: test that we use at Phelps Health doesn't score sleep, so I don't know if you're awake or asleep. So if you're having apneic episodes, it can divide those apneic episodes over awake time. So it can under underestimate. Okay. And then, you know, I'd say about 30% of the time, 20 to 30% of the time, it can say that you don't have sleep apnea when you actually do. Um, it doesn't look at things like, like kicking or periodic movement disorder. Uh, and then, you know, with an actual sleep study, I can look at different sleep stages. I can look if you're in deep sleep or dream sleep, I can see, okay, does your sleep apnea worsen with? When you're on your back, does it worsen when you're in dream sleep? You know, what type of sleep apnea do you have really? And even, you know, um, various little details that I can
0: look at in an in-lab sleep study tends, tends to make it a lot more accurate. So you talked about dream sleep versus deep sleep. Mm -hmm. I thought they were the same thing. So let's talk about that. Yeah, the sleep
1: (laughs) stages. So there are four different sleep stages. Mm -hmm. There's light or in between sleep. um, It's called N1 or light stage sleep. That's that sleep that we just briefly get. We transition between awake to light stage sleep. So if you take a nap and you fall asleep in this stage of sleep, you're often not really sure if you slept or not, or if you hear your name being called, you wake up. So that's our transitioning point. And then there's um, moderate stage sleep. So that's N2 and that's where we spend most of our night generally. N3 is our deep sleep. So that's really important sleep that we need that people with sleep apnea don't get enough of or if we're sleep deprived, we don't get enough of. And interestingly, just recently in 2016, there was a new study that came out that realized that the brain actually has a toxin clearing system. So we never knew this and that toxin clearing system only comes out during deep sleep. So if you're deprived from whatever reason, be it mm-hmm. sleep deprivation, not getting enough hours of sleep or sleep apnea, so your, your brain can't clear out those toxins and then you have those same uh, misfolded protein mm-hmm. that, that you find in Alzheimer's dementia. And so we don't necessarily know the full link. Is there a link between sleep deprivation and sleep apnea with Alzheimer's dementia, but there are currently studies going on now to find out if there truly is a link.
0: Is sleep medicine a very old field?
1: no it's new it it just it just came about i think in the 90s is when they were starting you know late 80s early 90s when they started to do sleep studies and really identifying
0: Yeah, it's amazing hearing all these different phases of sleep Mm -hmm. and hearing how much it's progressed since the 90s. Right, right. It it really blows my mind. Like, we have so much more to learn about sleep and how important it is and how valuable it is to our overall well-being and health, right? Absolutely. Yeah, very cool. I think a lot of people don't realize that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I forgot one more stage of sleep. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, then there's the dream sleep. So that's the sleep where often I see sleep apnea getting worse because when we go into dream sleep, Our brain sends out this hormone to paralyze our muscles so we don't act out our dreams and so the airway becomes a lot more collapsible and so what happens is sleep apnea can become a lot more severe but then people aren't getting as much deeper dream sleep though they might feel like they're having more nightmares or more dream sleep because they're waking up more often because of
0: apnea episodes during dream sleep so are nightmares related to sleep apnea they absolutely
1: can be. So if you're stopping breathing, your your dreams can turn into nightmares because you feel like you're gasping or you can't breathe and you're waking up more frequently from your mm-hmm. dreams and or nightmares.
0: Yeah, so for any of our listeners, if they are experiencing this type of thing, it's definitely something to know and to take stock of. Absolutely. So what can a patient do to help prepare for an appointment if they think that they may have sleep apnea? You know, let's say they scheduled an appointment with you. Do they need to start documenting their night's sleep before they come visit? That's a good question. I think what's really important and, and often people aren't really sure of is
1: if they stop breathing or if they snore. And, and it's something that, again, we won't know if we mm-hmm. do, but a bed partner or a family member, whether you've shared you know a bed on vacation or hotel room, can tell you if you've stopped breathing at night or if you snore, because that can be very valuable information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't have that person, you know, we have videos on our camera. Absolutely. I mean, nobody <laughs> wants report. to go through eight hours of sleep video, but right, if right. you're, if it's something that you're really struggling with, that's yeah. definitely an option. It's a great idea. So one of the things that we talk about whenever we talk about sleep medicine is there is a scale called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. What value does that bring? So
1: that tells me uh, if someone's, you know, what degree of sleepiness, if if the, if the sleepiness is something that I have to intervene with. So if someone's very sleepy during the day, it can be from sleep apnea, but it can be from other disorders like narcolepsy or something called idiopathic hypersomnia, which is just a disorder where someone might have irresistible periods of sleepiness. It's a great um, monitoring tool that I have with people who have sleep apnea to see, does their sleepiness improve with treatment of their sleep apnea, and if not, what other interventions can I do, or where can we go from here, or are they on the right treatment?
0: Is sleep apnea very commonly um, misdiagnosed with other sleep disorders? So I think it can be misdiagnosed
1: with people who are having fatigue with other disorders, but oftentimes when, when sleep apnea is, is um, identified, it's usually the sleep study can give you a very definitive diagnosis. There is there is that's actually a good question, because there are some people who have sleep apnea get started on CPAP and feel like they can't tolerate it or it doesn't work well for them. There is a different type of sleep apnea that may come about with the start of CPAP that can worsen or cause a different type of sleep apnea. and so those can, the people who have struggled with CPAP in the past, I don't want them to feel like this is it. There's, there's other alternatives or, or things out there that can really benefit them or treat their underlying sleep apnea.
0: What are the different types of sleep
1: apnea? So there's obstructive sleep apnea, which we talked about the most common mm-hmm. where the airway collapses. There's another type of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea. And that's basically where the brain just for some reason forgets to tell the body to breathe. And so for a majority, it's something called idiopathic where the medical world doesn't really understand why you might have central sleep apnea. Um, for some, we can identify something in the brain, a lesion in the brain, area of the mm-hmm. brain called the brain stem. And so, I, with anyone who's diagnosed with primary central sleep apnea, we do an evaluation with an MRI of the brain to make sure they don't have something in the brain stem. Um, we also look at the heart to make sure there is no evidence of heart failure because that can be a reason why someone may develop central sleep apnea. But also it can be due to sometimes opioid medications can cause central sleep apnea as well. Again, it's not as common, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely something to keep an eye out for. And traditionally people who have central sleep apnea, the traditional BiPAP doesn't usually
0: work well for them. For the people who may have the central sleep apnea, maybe they have something on their brainstem. Is that something that can be removed? That's a good question. All depends on what it is. So there are things that people can be born with that are
1: uh, what we call congenital, just something that they're born with. Uh, there are other things that could be, you know, a mass or a tumor or something that might need to be, you know, followed routinely with, with imaging. Um, sometimes it could be vessel abnormalities. So it all depends on what's found, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that kind of directs where we go
0: yeah it, it's really interesting to hear this because to me i'm like this is why it's so important to establish primary care to go to your physician on a consistent basis mm-hmm. to go and get evaluated if you're having problems with your sleep so that you can address these before it becomes a long-term issue absolutely yeah. so what happens if somebody doesn't address you know the effects of sleep apnea and they have it and it mm-hmm. goes untreated oh i love this question so <laughs> so sleep
1: apnea when chronic and untreated so i like to equate sleep apnea to something mm-hmm. like Not brushing your teeth so if you don't brush your teeth for a day or two or a month maybe you can get away with it but any longer you start to develop cavities and same with sleep apnea if you leave it untreated over time you're at much higher risk for things like um, high blood pressure resistant high blood pressure that's blood pressure that needs more than one medication to be well treated your heart's working so hard to keep up with oxygen demand that it starts to dilate and you go into something called heart failure and as the heart starts to dilate, your heart can be thrown into funny heart rhythms. The main one we worry about is something called atrial fibrillation. The reason being is because that can, that can cause stroke to the brain for people. And so we worry about someone developing atrial fibrillation. And then additionally, uh, you're not getting good deep, restful sleep. So your memory is affected, which we talked about. If you have any underlying depression or anxiety, it's so much harder to keep them at bay or balance because you're in this chronic sleep deprived state. You're tired, you're irritable. And also pain. So a lot of people struggle with pain, and it's not that sleep apnea causes pain, but your nervous system is on this hyper arousal, hyper alert mode where the nerve receptors are just firing and firing, and it's so much harder to keep your pain at bay. Um, same with um, increased risk for metabolic resistance, which has higher risk of develop diabe- mm-hmm. diabetes down the line, uh, eye pressure problems that can lead to vision loss in the future. Um, what else? There's what about so headaches
0: things. or migraines?
1: Absolutely, morning, daily morning headaches is one of the things we look at for sleep apnea, and that's one one. And if you have underlying migraines, it can make migraines worse because your oxygen's dipping quite quite frequently at night. For a lot of people, also loss of libido and erectile dysfunction can be one. Um, and you know, if you are someone who needs pain medications or you need medications, prescription medications to help you with falling asleep at night, those medications can cause your breathing to be more shallow and. It, places you at a slightly higher risk of death. So it's so important to identify if you have sleep apnea and get it treated so that, you know, it, it
0: puts your risk, you know, it minimizes your risk significantly. Yeah, that's a huge laundry list of yeah. things that could potentially go wrong or lessen your lifespan or, you know, cause the quality of your life to become diminished. Right. So right. if that doesn't convince somebody, yeah. I don't know what will, right? right? Right. Um, so what options are available for people who have sleep apnea and they know and they're aware and they want to do something to make it better? So the,
1: the, the first, second, and third treatment that we always look at is something called pap therapy or CPAP, BiPAP, whatever is determined that they need. The reason being is because uh, we consider it the gold standard of treatment because we know it works when it does work. It has very minimal side effects. And often, you know, there are some struggles people may have with the, finding the right mask, which is very normal, or getting the humidity adjusted. And, and when we can work through those struggles, pap therapy can be really excellent treatment for a lot of people. If pap therapy doesn't work, then there are some other different uh, uh, treatment options. For people with mild to low moderate sleep apnea, there's a dental oral appliance called the mandibular advancement device that can be fitted through a dentist. Um, It's something that medical insurance does generally tend to cover. uh, And um, basically it's an oral device that they put at night that just moves the jaw forward. Uh, there's also surgery, so there are three types of surgeries that can be done, and these are usually recommended for more moderate to severe sleep apnea. Again, it's usually if we've tried and failed CPAP, BiPAP, or whatever, pap therapy for second and third, and then we, we discuss uh, surgical treatment options. So there's one surgery, which uh, is the traditional surgery that's known, where they go in and they just remove part of your airway. It's called UPPP that's about 40 to 60 percent effective and it can Mm -hmm. have some recovery time at uh, you know you can have some sore throat and whatnot Um, there are some newer options with sleep trained ear nose and throat doctors where there's a little bit higher effective rate uh, with with various different things other than just cutting out the airway but maybe lifting some of the palate there's another type of surgery called uh, mandibular maxillary advancement surgery and basically what the surgeon does is they put a little crack in your jaw Mm -hmm. upper and lower and they move it forward with hardware and then the bone grows together it's a very invasive surgery. Yes. Surprisingly, it's less I've been told it's less painful than the air, the soft tissue surgery wow. because bone pain can be controlled with pain medicines well. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a little bit higher success rate. It's about 80% successful. So that's a that's a possible option. But then just recently, I'd say a few years ago, there was a new device that came out called Inspire. And it's a lot like a pacemaker, where there's a battery pack that's inserted Mm -hmm. under your chest with a little little wire that goes up to the nerve called the hypoglossal nerve. So this nerve is meant to just stimulate the tongue movement. And what you do is you turn it on at night, and it senses when you're breathing in. And when you do, it gently pushes the base of your tongue forward. So often people tell me that they feel it initially, but then over time, um, they, they feel like they can't tell if it's on or off. So that could be a possible uh, good treatment for people who just really can't tolerate so is that surgical as well like it's under your
0: chest yeah it's considered surgical because they have to insert a battery pack with the wire inserted upwards wow that is really cool that's amazing i love the name of it to inspire Inspire. absolutely yeah i got the inspire surgery no big deal (laughs) so one more quick question before we wrap up how can we create better sleep cycles and schedules in our busy lives that's a really good question i think i think
1: just you know, understanding how important sleep health is for your overall health and well-being and just really trying to give your give that to yourself and scheduling that time and saying, well, you know, if I have to wake up at this time, I'm giving, I need to be in bed by this time. And just giving that to yourself is really important. Setting a consistent sleep-wake cycle is really important too through the week and weekends um, so that you're not playing catch-up sleep <laughs> on the weekdays or the weekends. Yes. But yeah, great question. I don't think we have a great answer because our lives mm-hmm. are so busy. And I think yeah. just putting more yeah. emphasis on, you know, your health and well-being is really important.
0: Yeah, great, great advice, Dr. Saman. Thank you Thank so much you. for being here today. I learned so much from you, and I hope that our listeners do as well. Thank you. Thanks. So thanks so much for tuning into The Scope. If you like this show and would like to know more, check out PhelpsHealth.org.